Graves at my command have waked their sleepers. Oaked and let them forth by my so potent art. But this rough magic I hear of Jura. And when I have required some henly music, which even now I do, to work mine end upon their senses, that this airy charm is for, I'll break my staff, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll... Captain? Sir, your attention is wandering. The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, Spidey-Dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at Patreon.com slash Spidey Dude Network, Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a Spectacular Radio, a Spectacular Spider-Man-related show that start a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter at Spidey Dude Radio and this show at From Erie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, Amazon Audible, as well as Google Podcasts. It helps us raise our vis- visibility and like, share, and subscribe for more at Spidey Dude Network. YouTube.com slash Network. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, Instagram.com slash Network. With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Bashansky. Welcome back to Voices from the Eerie. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and joining me as usual is my partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everybody. And rejoining us is a series co-creator, co-producer, and the writer of the SLG comics and the Dynamite comic that is coming out later this year, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hey, folks. And we are very pleased to have with us... Uh, legendary actor he's been around for a long time and so many different things from star trek to night court independence day so many things mr brent spiner 
Well, hi there, Greg and uh, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Um, and uh, we'll see if I say that at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're being critiqued right now. Okay, I got it. Yes, but before we get started, this before we get started, this show is going live on September sixteenth. So, Jennifer, happy birthday! It's my birthday on September sixteenth. Happy birthday! Oh, happy birthday! Happy birthday, uh, Virgo! Yep, terminally Virgo. And you know what, Jennifer? That's nothing to be ashamed of. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. Uh, This is gold already. So, Brent, we would like to get to know you. Um, How did you become an actor in the first place? Uh, Well, I uh, I went to I I was in high school uh, that had a fantastic teacher, and um, he's one of those guys that you dream about. And uh, that changes your life. And uh, and so he did that for me. I, I was in a high school drama class uh, with uh, a lot of people that are fairly well known at this point. Uh, the two Quaid brothers, Randy and Dennis, both passed through that class. And um, Thomas Schlamme, who uh, co-created The West Wing with Aaron Sorkin and has directed and produced a thousand, dozens of other things, was in my class. And... Um, Marianne Williamson, who ran for president uh, in 2016, was in my class, or rather 2020 when she ran. Um, so it was a pretty stellar class. There were others, too, I could mention. But, um, but yeah, I had a great teacher, and he encouraged me and, uh, you know, did that all-important thing that a, a great teacher does and, you know, gives you a sense that you have something to offer. And that's what he did for me. And it definitely paid off because you have done so much. Many times I didn't even recognize you, and then I'm thinking, holy crap, that was Brent? <laughs> Fantastic yeah. well, character actor. Oh, thank you so much. Well, that that was what really started even in high school was uh, we were taught to try to do as many different things as we could possibly do. And that's, that's uh, you know... That's helped me a lot through the years, and that's uh, what I've always wanted to do and have kept trying to do. And on that note, how did you move over to voice acting? Was Gargoyles your first voice acting gig? You know what? I think it was, actually. Uh, I can't remember having done any voice acting before Gargoyles. Uh, that was uh, the show that uh, created by the great Greg Wiseman, who uh, you might know uh, or you might be able to see. If you look to your left, uh, I don't know, is he actually in the room with you? Are you in the room there, Greg? The, there, there's no room. There's no room. We're in four no We're all over the all over the country. Well, where are you guys? I am in New York. I am New in York. Denver, Colorado. Get out. And, and, and Greg, I assume you're in uh, like Burbank or something, right? I'm in Los Angeles, California. Los Angeles, yeah. Well, and and I'm uh, also in Los Angeles, uh, and but we're in different rooms. That's that's great. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's this whole modern technology thing. I don't understand it personally. I think it's witchcraft, but yeah, he works. he really does I, not understand it. <laughs> I, I don't either. Uh, and do you guys uh, like travel from LA to New York and Denver just to do the show? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so anyway, yeah, uh, uh, I, I was uh, I was kindly asked by by Greg Weisman to be a part of uh, Gargoyles, which is 
you know, we all know a fantastic series, one of the great series, and it, it so far ahead of its time, it's just absurd. It would have been today the biggest thing on television, I think. And um, so, and, and and so, yeah, I was lucky, and and I think a lot of my uh, next generation companions were also on the show. I don't know whether Greg was a fan of the show or it just turned out that way, but uh, but well, it was, it was great. Both things are true. Oh, okay. It just turned out that way, and you were a fan of the show. Right. And the two things sort of work together symbiotically. But really, uh, it all mm-hmm. started with Marina. Um, she auditioned and was so... Um, Did she? Damn good. And, and which one was yeah. Marina? I mean, is she, uh, she, who was she on Next Generation? I don't recall. Uh uh, Next Generation, I think she was Demona. I know she was Deanna Troy on Gargoyles. Right, exactly. Yes, I recall that, too. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Maureen auditioned, and then uh, then Jonathan came along. And was Michael Dorn right. on the show, too? Right. Yeah, Dorn and, uh, and uh, uh, LeVar. Uh, oh, LeVar and, was on? Uh, Michelle Nichols. Uh, Michelle Nichols. Mulgrew. Michelle, wow. Um, Call me. Was there anybody on? Colin was on. Was there anybody on the show who was not on Next Generation? Avery. Yeah, Kate Mulgrew. She wasn't on Next Generation. Avery Brooks wasn't on. Oh right. Well, that's true. No, that's true. That's true. But I should have said who wasn't on Star Trek. But um, oh well, then no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I tell you this. Cece Pounder should have. Yeah. I know Cece Pounder. She should have been on Star Trek, but what the heck? Right. Um, you know, we had uh, some great people who were not on Star Xander Berkeley, I don't think, did Star Trek. But we had some oh, yeah, people Xander who, uh, um, you know, we had David Warner who did some Star Trek, but oh, also did some other things. He was on Star Trek. Yeah. I loved it. John Reese Davies was on, was on, yeah. uh, played Leonardo da Vinci in some Star Trek episodes and... Um, right. He played Macbeth for us, and um, and also did this uh, little movie about some rings. Uh, uh, that I don't know. There were like three or four movies with rings in them uh, that he was in. Yeah. Well, it was a great cast. It was a great show. It really was. And um, you know, I don't know if you know Greg that I, uh, uh, Greg Weisman, that I uh, usurped that character. Uh, and did it on another show. You played Puck on another show. The librarian. Another show. The librarians. Yeah, librarians. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, oh, I didn't know. That. And yeah, and as and I was only a voice. I think I don't know. I because guess I didn't watch that either. But I, uh, I said to Dean Devlin, who produced the show, I said what I'd like to do because he wrote this character Puck. Uh, and asked me to do it quite, uh, you know, accidentally. I mean, he didn't know that I had done it on Gargoyles. And I told him I had, and I said, I'd kind of like to do it as close to what I did on that, if I can remember, just as a little, you know, thing for the fans who, who are fans of both shows. Right. And he said, okay, fine. So, so are you sure he didn't know? Because Dean Devlin wrote a draft of a live-action Gargoyles movie. I never read it. Oh, you're kidding. Show it to me. Uh, wow. Yeah, they wouldn't show it, so I never read it. But he, because uh, I was officially. Well, he didn't. 
producer on the movie, so they wouldn't let me read it. Um, huh. Well, he he uh, he didn't say to me, "Do what you did on Gargoyles." Uh, I, I I remember saying to him, "I want to do what I did on Gargoyles." It's cool. But, it's uh, that's cool. interesting. I didn't know. I, yeah, we, I didn't know there was Jonathan on. And uh, do you remember the the Will Riker clone? Yeah, uh, that he played. I yeah, have a theory uh, 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 that he based the clone of Will Riker on the David Vanitos character that he played on Gargoyles, mm-hmm. and he confirmed mm-hmm. that, which was cool. Then I have this other theory that he played uh, a one-episode guest spot on the show, the comedy Wings, and that he was also doing uh-huh. Vanitos for that one, and he said I was huh. say. <laughs> you said you were high. Incredible. You said I was high. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I think he does Benetos in his own life too. Yes, it's very. Uh, yeah. That's all. That's all we really did is we just uh, we cast a type. You know, in other words, Marina playing Deanna. Marina is much more like Demona than she is like Deanna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you're probably right. She's admitted that one, too. But speaking of Jonathan, you mentioned Librarian's episode where he played Puck. Jonathan Frakes actually directed that episode. Yeah. The one that... He directed what episode of what? Of, of, oh, of Librarians. That's yeah. Right. That's right. And it was... I think my scene was with... If I'm not mistaken, because, I, again, I didn't see it, but I think I was in... The scene was with John Larroquette, who I worked with on Night Court. Probably he was in Librarians, wasn't he? I think so, yeah. It's yeah. been a while. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that's correct. And there's another Puck connection. I actually just checked this earlier today. There's an episode of TNG. I believe it's Time Zero. They go back in time to the 19th century where they're pretending to be a Shakespearean troupe at one point, and you read Puck lines as data. Did I do that? You did. (laughs) I have no memory of that whatsoever, but uh, I'm sure you're right. Uh, I've actually seen... And I've said this before, but uh, I've only seen about 10 episodes of Next Generation. And uh, that that was the first 10. And then I said, I thought, well, maybe I'd better watch something else because I was spending so much time uh, on the set and reading the scripts and memorizing them. And I thought, you know, I I really need to to watch something else. Uh, So I've never seen about 160-some-odd episodes. A lot of episodes. I've probably seen all of them by this point. Have you? No, I've seen all of them. Uh, well, I, I figure, you know, maybe maybe on my deathbed, I'll, I'll binge the series. That and The African Queen, which I've also never seen. Oh, you got to see that one. <laughs> I just saw The African well, Queen. Well, I'm saving it. It was just on TCM. I'm saving it. The other day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm saving it for for the end because I know it's good. The other night uh, we watched Princess Bride. This is apropos of absolutely nothing, but my wife had never seen Princess Bride. So oh, which did you love it? Inconceivable. Yeah, truly. Um, did she yeah. love it? She she did. She really liked it. And I'm like, and I checked with my kids, and I'm like, did, did you have you guys seen Princess Bride? And they're like, yeah, Dad, you watched it with us. And I'm like, that's what I thought, but I guess my wife did. So for the first time ever. And when you watched it, when you watched it again, did you like it as much? Yeah, I mean, it, part of yeah. it, I'll admit, is uh, 
it just, you know, it gives me a whole nostalgic, warm, fuzzy feeling on top of how good the movie is, you know? Um, sure. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, yeah, there's just, uh, so much in it. So much. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it really is. Somebody once asked me, is there any role in any other film that you wished you had played? And the, the only one I can think of is, is, Mandy's role in uh, Prince Bride, and he's fantastic in it. Yeah. Yes. Prepare to die. Uh, yeah, great. We're a bit off topic, probably. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to see. I'm, I'm going to steer us back. But Brent, one of the reasons I've always been a fan of your acting, outside of obviously Star Trek and even Gargoyles, there are times when I just don't recognize you, and I realize after the fact that it was you. You're almost like a chameleon. It's amazing and i didn't realize you were puck until after i had gotten on the i recognized jonathan marina but i didn't realize you were puck until about a year after i had seen the episode and i'd gotten onto the internet for the first time and saw a cast list i mean they are both data and puck they're so but both such different characters polar opposite ends of the spectrum and yet you brought a very human quality to the both of them well thank you thank you uh, i mean obviously it was great fun to do and 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 that is sort of like uh, the idea is to try to, you know, cover as many bases as you can and do as many things. You know, I kind of see myself in a lot of ways as the, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, George Plimpton of acting, you know. Uh, that, where, I don't know if you remember George Plimpton, but he was a writer. For, I, I do, but that, uh, that's a deep cut. Yes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> paper lion and things. He, he, he got in a boxing ring with, uh, I think Archie Moore, a professional boxer and got knocked out just so he could see what it was like to do that. And, uh, and that's sort of the way I, I, I look at acting. It's just, you know, I, I don't care what the genre is. I'm just going to try it out. Nice. And I'm, I'm glad to see that you're that adventurous because I've, there's other actors out there who I've noticed kind of stay in their own lane. And I suppose that's fine if they find success doing that, but seeing you do so many different things. And then in my case, recognizing you after the fact, it's been a joy all these years. I mean, you're always a delight to watch and, and listen to, I mean, I was surprised when I bought Greg's audio play for, for um, reign of the ghosts. And you were, you only had a couple lines in that you were Silas Setabos and, you and we talked about right. this before the show, but we can talk about this here. And the work he did for him also was the Joker and on Star Wars Rebels. Again, even again, right. didn't recognize you until after the fact. Well, that's that's nice. I appreciate that. That's uh, exactly what I want to hear. I mean, on, uh, on Rebels, it was like, hey, we want this character to have this sort of feel of being David Niven, and. <laughs> I don't know why, but immediately I thought of Brent. I was like, oh, Brent, Brent can do this. Brent can give me David. Well, Hill. you know, um, I, I do. You know, not I like do a, not like, a, not like a, a rich little like impersonation of David. That, I didn't need that, but just uh, give me the feel. Of, right. Of, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I remember the audition. Uh, my manager called and he said, uh, can you do David Niven? And I said, well, I can do David Niven-ish, and uh, so I, I recorded it, and you, you know, he gave me the job, and then I, I did see the uh, the drawing of what the character looked like, and he looked like David Niven. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> so that was fun. It's also always fun to have uh, Brent in the booth because he's got the best stories. 
Oh, thanks. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, uh, you won't hear any of them on this show, but uh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> well, I did hear you once said that the cat on Next Generation was the hardest actor you've ever worked with. Well, he was the worst actor. Uh, I, 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 uh, I mean, this, and and I, you know, people say, well, you hate cats, and I really don't hate cats, uh, and I didn't hate that cat. Uh, I just, uh, I just felt like the cat really couldn't act. And, um, and he couldn't, <laughs> and, and uh, there was a time, a point in, in time where I actually asked them if they could put a little dog in a cat suit and they refused to do that. <laughs> but the writers used to write the cat in just to, just to piss me off. Uh, and they'd write stuff that, they, that they didn't even, what we weren't even going to film just to jerk me around when I'd read it. And, you know, the cat would, I would, the cat would have to do amazing things. And that cat couldn't do anything except, uh, you know, eat tuna. And that's all the only thing he could ever do. So back on Next Generation, I mean, Gargoyles touches on all the classics, and he got to do a lot of the classics on TNG as well. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, um, you did an entire monologue right. as Prospero, as I recall. Do you have, especially since the episode we're going to talk about shortly is so Shakespearean, do you have a uh, Shakespearean background beyond that? Well, uh, I... I have some, I mean, not as much as I, I would like to have, uh, because I, I'd like to do a proper Shakespeare play if, if I could, but, uh, and, and I've talked to some people about it, but, uh, again, when I was in high school and college, my teachers really pushed us to do everything. And so, uh, you know, I did, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, I did that in college. I didn't play Puck. I played uh, Peter Quince. And um, I once did uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, the whole text, uh, with the L.A. Philharmonic. It was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had to be. I played Bottom in that one. And to have the entire L.A. Philharmonic behind you playing Mendelssohn while you did the, the lines, it was incredible. And that, that happens to be a, a play that is audience proof. And uh, playing bottom was also, I mean, you'd have to be just terrible not to land at his bottom because the, the laughs are just built in and you just have to say it and the audience goes berserk. So a yeah, very rewarding experience. And I played uh, Shylock in uh, Merchant of Venice in college. And that's a part I'd like to do again, because I think maybe at this point in my life, it may be the only Shakespeare left that I'm really right for. I don't know. I think you can still do Prospero. <laughs> yeah, I could do Prospero, probably. <laughs> uh, but then, do you really want to see The Tempest? I mean... Uh, I saw a production at the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Club a year ago. I loved it. <laughs> Did you love it? Seriously? I, I, I've always found it a real problematic play. I, I don't get it. As many times as I've seen it, and I love the characters in it. They're great characters. I just don't understand. And uh, I, I'm sure smarter people than me uh, watch it and absorb it and get it totally, but it's always eluded me. I, I find it, uh, it really varies production to production. I mean, I've seen probably a dozen Um and sometimes they can kind of crack it, and sometimes, yeah, not at all. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot, of it there's a lot that's problematic in it, but um, I think there's yeah. other ways. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. 
uh, I just but I have you're, get, you're getting there. You 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 could get to Lear, man. You could do it. Well, I could get to Lear. <laughs> is there is Lear a comedy? I, no, Lear's not a comedy. I uh, I actually saw a perfect Lear uh, many years ago. I saw Ian Holm play Lear. He was fantastic. And that was a great, great production. But I don't think I'm really a Lear. I, I think I'm more of a Shylock. Uh, well, I would, I would love because to play Shylock. That would be great. That would be yeah, great. I but love that's life. also a very problematic I, play. Yeah, I've seen one production that I thought really nailed it. Did you? Uh, I've seen yeah. a couple that I thought were really good, really good. And uh, I know my friend Patrick uh, Stewart played uh, Shylock. Well, he's done it a couple of times through the years, but he did a really successful production in London that was adapted by John Logan, and it was um, set at the uh, Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, and um, it had a real contemporary feel to it, but the dialogue was, was strict Shakespeare. That sounds very cool. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Formed at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, but then moving through the hotel the whole time, and the audience following. Hey, that's a good idea. I saw We're going from stuff like that where where the where the it was done. You know that church in L.A. Uh, that's on the corner where uh, Franklin and uh, Highland meet. There's like a church right at the yeah. head there. You know what I'm totally. talking about? Oh, oh yeah, was I used to live at the Highland Gardens. Right. So in right. that church, they did in and around that church, they did this production of Macbeth. And the witches also acted as ushers for the audience. And they would say things like shift away, you know, lines from the play to get mm. the audience moving, to follow the actors to wherever the next scene was. It was very, it was a really wow. cool production. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. I yeah. actually liked the movie that last year, the Denzel Washington uh, movie. I thought it was a, a really fairly clear version of, of Macbeth. Yeah, I thought it was also just amazing to look at. Just like it really was. It was so inventive. I I, I would say it was one of the Cohen brothers. I can't remember which one uh, who directed it, but he did such a great job with it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Joel, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Joel. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've done. uh, Also, for I've had uh, the L.A. Shakespeare Company. Uh, does uh, a, a benefit every year, um, and I've done it several times. The, the first time was the LA Philharmonic Midsummer, but I've done several of them. And what they do is they they put together a quote unquote all star cast, uh, and uh, I think they charge. It's just a reading. You, you rehearse it in the daytime, and he semi stages it. The director semi stages it, and then. Uh, you perform it that one time at night, and uh, I've had some wonderful experiences doing that. Uh, I, I, I did a production of um, uh, uh, what's the one with the Benedict Beatrice and Benedict? Um, um, much ado uh, about uh, much ado, yeah. And it was the cast was uh, this was the cast. It was. Uh, Helen Hunt and Ewan McGregor were Beatrice and Benedict and Tom Hanks, uh, Julia Roberts, uh, uh, Keanu Reeves, uh, 
Michael McKean, Martin Sheen, me. Uh, it was just an amazing experience. And uh, uh, Keanu had played, there was a, a famous, the, the wonderful film of it that Ken Branagh did. Uh, Keanu yeah, was I love in, that and he played the same. Yeah. And he played the same part. And uh, I played the part Denzel played in the movie. Uh, but it was really good. And uh, just uh, uh, Ewan McGregor was sensational. Uh, it's just perfect in it. But he always has a musical guest, too. And we had Jackson Brown, I think, uh, did the interludes between the scenes. Uh, but I did one, I think it was Love's Labor Lost. Uh, and I, I've asked my friend Patrick, who does, done, has done all the Shakespeare's, uh, have you ever done this play? He said, yeah. And I said, in all the productions you've ever done of it or seen of it, has the shepherd ever been just brought the house down every time he speaks? And he said, no. I said, well, I did a production with Ellie Shakespeare where the shepherd stole the show every time he spoke. <laughs> and it's because it was played by Tommy Smothers, who literally just read it straight and was hilarious. And, uh, you know, it's experiences like that. So anyway, yeah, I've had some experience doing Shakespeare, not, not a tremendous amount, but those are my experiences. And those sound fantastic. I would have given a limb to see some of these. What you just described sound just incredible. Jackson Brown was also the musical guest at Ed Asner's Memorial Series. Is that right? Huh. Yeah. I, I'm taking, I think that's already happened, right? The Memorial Service? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, yeah. two months ago. But um, yeah, he was a musical guy. No kidding. Well, Ed, there was another great guy uh, as well. You know, Greg. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like my work dad. Yeah. Great he, man. Knew him, just... knew him for years. Not, not very, very well, but well enough. And uh, loved, always loved being around him. So many fantastic people who work on the show. And um, Brent, I mean, we really appreciate you joining us. I mean, I really enjoyed your book, by the way, Fan Fiction, and we're going to place a link for it in the uh, on the page in the, when we post this. But um, are there any final thoughts, anything else you would like to plug? Uh, well, no. I mean, I'd love it if people bought my book, but, you know, and thank you for mentioning it. I, Greg uh, Weisman and I have the same... Uh, editor on our book uh, and uh, a wonderful guy um, and uh, no it was just Michael Homler Michael Homler exactly and uh, terrific guy and very helpful and uh, was a wonderful experience you know the pandemic is what uh, allowed me you know if there was anything good about it and, and there was precious little good about it uh it did offer me the time to write this book uh, because there was no acting work to be had. Well, we're, de we're definitely glad that's that's changed and people are back to work, acting, making great television, movies, yep. stage. <laughs> yep. yep, thank God. Thank God for that. Absolutely. All right, is there any, any, do you have any other projects you would like to plug? No, uh, you know, I know people are looking forward to seeing the third season Star Trek Picard, uh, which features all my buddies from next generation and uh, I'm not looking forward to seeing it as well. 
And I think that happened sometime around February is what I'm told at this point. But uh, it was a lot of fun for all of us to get back together again and uh, play. And it wasn't, you know, necessarily about getting back together again because we see each other all the time. But uh, in that context, uh, for the characters to all get back together again was really fun. I cannot wait to see it. Uh, Jen, we haven't heard from you in a while. Do you have any questions? Chopping at the bit to ask me a question. <laughs> I have seen Brent on stage. I have. I've witnessed have him you? live. Yeah. I saw wow, every, every good boy deserves favor, and it was hilarious. Wow. Wow, that was a really fun uh, show to do. Uh, again, the cast of uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation did a yeah. play while we were while we were doing the series. Uh, we would go off on weekends to Chicago and Atlanta and just do one or two nights, and then fly home and go back to work the next morning. And uh, that was a wonderful experience. It's a great little play by Tom Stoppard, and. Uh, uh, again, we had a full orchestra. It was it was great. Patrick Stewart directed, and um, yeah, it was a blast to do. I love that play. It was a good time. Yeah, good. That sounds fantastic. Also, I would have loved to have seen that. We're gonna gear up and start talking about the episode at hand in which uh, you are featured, which is the mirror. Yeah. Um, right. But it has been absolutely a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you so much. I wish I could have offered more uh, about the episode, but let me just say this, uh, and I mean this, if Greg Weisman wrote it, it, it was good uh, because he, he does great did, work. And I, I really do admire it. I work. did not write it. I produced it, but I did not write it. <laughs> but it is my favorite. Well, this couldn't have been any good. It, it couldn't have been any good then if Greg didn't write it. But... Uh, no, no, I, I, but I didn't. I thought you liked them all, but uh, you know, again, what do I know? I know you produced it, and let me just let me just say again, anything that Greg Weisman produces, I know is going to be good. <laughs> I appreciate that. We definitely look forward to your next collaboration, then. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, keep me in mind, Greg. Uh, I work cheap. <laughs> always, always. It was a real, it was a real pleasure, Brent. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you, guys. Uh, uh, delighted. Uh, everyone, be well, and um, uh, hope to talk to you again one day. Okay. Okay. Take care. Definitely. Take care. Take care. This is Nightwatch reporting from New York. Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. NECA finally put up their Broadway figure for pre-order, so if you want that, go get it. And they just showed off their new Coldstone figure, which is coming out whenever. <laughs> and looks amazing. And when they did their little Coldstone reveal, we got little peeks of other stuff they're working on in the background. Um, and I'm pretty sure it was Macbeth that we were looking at. Pieces of a coat, a face, some body armor, I think so, too. Yeah. Looking forward to that figure as well. Me, too. But what I like about that Coldstone figure from what we saw, they understood your intent, Greg. It actually does look like reanimated stone and steel. Yeah, it looks really good. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> cover of Toy Collector. What are you guys talking about? I, I don't know that I saw what you saw. 
Oh, d- different was, pictures. Was it in the article? No, it wasn't in the article. Yeah. It was on. It was on Instagram. I'll send you a pic. Instagram. It's one of those internet things. Yeah, it's technological, and we don't expect you to understand. <laughs> we'll send you the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and also, we'll keep in mind that when we see stuff on Instagram, that we should probably send you the pictures. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I'm afraid we're out of time. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. And now shifting gears into The Mirror, one of the most Shakespearean episodes of the series. And before we dive into the episode, we can talk a little bit about our own Shakespearean backgrounds. I mean, uh, we did that on Spectacular Radio, but that was a different podcast. So (laughs) what was... um, Yeah, what was your uh, first experience with The Bard? Me? Who are you asking? <laughs> yeah, Jen, you go first. Ladies first. Me, because mine's going to be, like, uneventful. Because it was just me being a nerd. And, uh, one, like, there was no... Um, all throughout school, like, everybody talks about Shakespeare, but no one had... We'd never read a Shakespearean play. We, You know, it was, like, it was just really weird. So, like, at the beginning of high school, I just decided to be a nerd and um, and start finding things to read. So I, I don't even remember what the first, the first one that I grabbed and read, but I was, I was absolutely hooked. And my mom thought I was nuts that I could even understand what they were saying. My father felt the same way when I demonstrated that I could understand what they were talking about. Like, I feel like there was a couple of pages where I was like, I'm not so sure. But then once you get into it, you are into it, man. <laughs> And Greg, what about you? When did your love affair with the Bard begin? Uh, well, I mean, the first time I saw any Shakespeare was in sixth grade. There was like a sixth grade production of Macbeth, and I definitely didn't get it, didn't understand it. Um, I don't know if it was a problem with my brain or the production or what, um, but uh, it went right over my head. Um, I, I was in the audience. I wasn't in it. Um, but it was sixth graders doing Macbeth for an audience of other sixth graders and, uh, totally didn't get it. Um, and in fact, all the way through high school, though, I, you know, for English class every year, they'd have us read at least one Shakespeare play. Um, I still wasn't into it, um, through high school. Uh, and in fact, in a for a drama class, uh, uh, this girl I was dating in high school and I uh, performed a um, a Romeo and Juliet scene, um, and we just had this huge argument over who was stupider, Romeo or Juliet. And I was convinced Romeo was stupider, and she was convinced Juliet was stupider, and. Um, uh, and I now have tremendous sympathy now that I'm much older than Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> I have tremendous sympathy for both of them. But back when we were their ages, we thought they were dumbasses. Um, <laughs> so, it, but so it was really in college. Um, I I don't know what shifted. I don't I, I don't know if something clicked. I did have just an amazing uh, Shakespeare professor, uh, a guy named Ron Rebholtz, who passed away a few years ago. Um, uh, who taught me Shakespeare, 
um, and then actually even let me be a TA as an undergraduate for his course the year after I had taken it. Um, and just tremendously encouraging to me in my study of it, but also really brought it to life for me. But I also think it, it had a lot to do with theater that I was doing. I did Shakespeare in college. I uh, directed uh, some Shakespeare and I performed in some Shakespeare and uh, everything from sonnets to uh, uh, King Lear to Henry the uh, Fourth Part One and um, and others. And I saw a lot of Shakespeare because they were always doing Shakespeare at college. And, and suddenly I just got it and I fell in love with it. And then I moved to New York where they also did a lot of Shakespeare and saw a lot there. And, um, and pretty soon I was just chasing Shakespeare everywhere I went. Like if I went to visit a friend in Washington, DC, I'd grab her and, you know, I'm only here one night let's go see a winner's tale. She's like, you don't want to go to a club or something? No, let's go see winner's tale. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then when I moved back to California, particularly uh, before I had kids, um, I would just chase Shakespeare all over, you know, anywhere in Los Angeles, obviously, but, and Jen and I used to do this. We'd go down to San Diego and see the shows down there. And, um, and then uh, I would go to Utah. About this time to, of year, to too. The, <laughs> yeah, the Utah Shakespearean Festival, or go up to Oregon, to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which I still go to every year. We went this year. Um, the only years that I've missed in the last 20 or so were the two pandemic years um, when they canceled the festivals. <laughs> That's why I missed it. Um, and... Uh, then, you know, when I had kids, I had less free time, but I got lucky and I took my kids to see uh, a production outside, out of doors at the L.A. County Museum of Art of Midsummer Night's Dream. And um, in hindsight, it was kind of a dumb thing to do because uh, what I realize now is that if it had gone badly, I might have sort of biased my kids against Shakespeare forever. Because <laughs> they were like four and six when I took them to this show. And at the time, I'm thinking, oh, it's an outdoor show. If they start to get bored or they start to act up, you know, I, I'll just, we'll just walk away. You know, we'll pick up the blanket and we'll walk away. But I got very lucky. It was a very kid-friendly production with all the fairies and sprites and everything like that. And the care, the actor who played Puck in particular, and I wish I could say who that was, but I don't remember, um, really played to the kids in the audience. He would go into the audience and there were quite a few kids in the audience, although none as young as my two, but he played to them and they were just enthralled. And then because that had worked out, I took them to a production of Macbeth down by the beach which they also really loved. And then from that point on, they'd just been my partners in crime, so to speak, about going to Shakespeare plays. And so we've seen Shakespeare, uh, you know, all over. And it's just been great. So I am a, I think, 
legit Shakespeare fanboy, uh, as much as I'm a Spider-Man fanboy or a DC or Marvel or Star Trek fanboy, I am a Shakespeare fanboy. And, um, uh, and Shakespeare became obviously a major influence on the Gargoyles TV show to bring this whole discussion back around to, I think what we were supposed to be talking about. <laughs> Although I may have, we're, we're I may have fi- forgotten. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think so. We're, we're finally here fans. I know you love this episode. We do too. We've been waiting. <laughs> here we go. This is a huge episode. The mirror huge directed by Frank Parr written by uh, Lydia. And I think story edited by Bryn. Yeah. And uh, we'll start with the biggest elephant in the room with this episode. And this is an awesome elephant, a good elephant. Why introduce a third race? Oh, uh, well, I mean, we're in season two at this point, 52 episodes for season two. We knew we had to expand the world of gargoyles, what was there, what existed. And so we were ready to sort of bring in another element to it. And um, that element was uh, the third race, also known as Oberon's children, the fair folk, the dark elves, whatever you want to call them. Um, and the first member of that race that we were going to reveal was Puck himself from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, did you know at this time, when you decided to bring Puck in, that Puck was going to be Owen? Wow, spoilers, Jen. <laughs> I'm assuming that people who are listening to this have seen the, the show. <laughs> um, no, I mean, yes and no. It depends what you mean by when, because um, when we were uh, starting to write the episode, we didn't know. But um, we knew Owen had a secret. We just didn't know. We hadn't quite figured out or, or nailed down what that secret was. And we talked about it, but never really found anything that seemed right. Having nothing to do with this episode, Owen's not in this episode. Um, and then I was at my desk at Walt Disney Television Animation, and it hit me that Puck was Owen. So I immediately called Bryn and Lydia, um, who were working out of uh, Bryn and Michael's house, Um deeper in the San Fernando Valley, as I recall. And I said, and I got them on the phone, and I'm like, listen, listen, Owen is Puck. To which they respond, we know. Um, (laughs) So it just kind of hit you all at once? Yeah, I mean, it just was right. I mean, this is one of these times we've talked about before on this show, on this podcast, but um, sometimes... Everything about Gargoyles had such a kismet feeling to it. Um, It felt like that the Gargoyles universe was out there. And we weren't writing stuff. We were tapping in. And it felt like there was a right way for stories to go and a wrong way for stories to go. And, And we just had to figure out what that right way was. I mean, I've talked about this metaphor before, but it, um, you know, it's that old Michelangelo, uh, Michelangelo story, which is the legend is, is that he would look at a block of marble and see the statue inside it and then say, 
my job's easy. All I have to do is cut away the access to reveal the statue. Um, That's why his uncompleted statues are called the prisoners. Right. And why they're also phenomenal, uh, too, probably. (laughs) But but that's kind of what it felt like on this show for, I think, Michael and Bryn um, and Gary and Carrie and I um, and Lydia probably and Frank and a bunch of other people. But is that, you know, there was the stories felt to us like, yes, that's how it's supposed to be. This is who Macbeth is supposed to be. This is who Owen is supposed to be. This is who Damona is supposed to be. And yes, Puck is Owen. Of course he is. How did we not see it sooner? Not like we're geniuses. Like it, it was there. You just We've, needed to figure it out. Yeah. We just had to cut away the excess and there it's revealed. Um, and, and that was kind of how, uh, it played out for us. Um, so by the time we got to finishing out this script, yes, we knew. So you have the one line in the, uh, episode where Demona says, you serve the human says to Puck, you serve the human. Now you'll serve me. And that was a, little clue that wait who's this human she's talking about oh it's xanatos oh he's owen that's the train of thought but then we intentionally had puck respond by saying serving humans plural is fun um i forget what the second half of the line is but uh they have a sense of humor they have a sense of humor you have none you know uh he's rhyming there and that was done intentionally to distract away from the clue we had just planted. In other words, she mentions a human specific. She's got someone in mind that she's talking about, which is Xanatos. But he says serving humans, plural. And so now it just seems like, oh, he served humans in the past, you know. And so we were intentionally trying to play fair with the audience on the one hand, but then actively trying to distract them <laughs> so that they didn't guess ahead of when we were ready to reveal it um, down the road. Um, and, you know, I think that was pretty successful. Uh, my guess is there maybe were one or two people who realized Donald's puck, but I would think that most of them didn't figure it out until we revealed it, which is, you know, something like 20 episodes from now. Well, way more than that. <laughs> way more than that. And I didn't figure it out either. We'll talk about that when we get there. But um, one of my favorite reveals in this episode early on is it wasn't so obvious in the first season after Awakening, but Demona is not only still carrying a torch for Goliath, she's actively jealous of Elisa. You look at that entire chase sequence in the museum, everything she throws, she's not aiming at Goliath, she's aiming at Elisa. Yeah. Uh, and that was all very intentional. I mean, we wanted we wanted to show a contrast. The idea was that, and even the audience felt this, that Goliath and Elisa were our power couple, right? But where are each of the two of them along that road to getting there? Who knows what, consciously or subconsciously? And then what is Demona's reaction to that? So what you see is that Demona is clearly already um, jealous of 
Elisa with a big hate on for her um, because of her connection, emotional connection to Goliath. And this goes back to awakening, you know, the, our pilot when Goliath insists on going to see Elisa uh, over his objections, when um, Elisa saves Goliath's life by, you know, slamming into Demona at the, right when she's about to shoot him. And to Goliath, when he's got a choice between saving Elisa and Demona, as they're both falling, at least presumably to their deaths, he chooses Elisa. Now, you can logically argue that Demona has wings and would probably manage to pull out of that fall eventually, which, of course, she did. And you can argue that Elisa doesn't have wings, and so if he didn't grab her, she was just dead. But if you're looking at that from Demona's point of view, that <laughs> He just let me die. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And that connection between the two of them became clear to her and we wanted to show that now in contrast is where's Goliath's head at? Where's Elisa's head at? So from Goliath's point of view, the way I see it is that prior to this episode, Goliath had made this emotional connection to Elisa that he found very attractive, at least subconsciously. But on a conscious level, he didn't think of her in that way at all. He couldn't. Uh, um, Whether or not he viewed her as an attractive human is like saying, you know, honestly, like, oh, that's a good-looking horse. Um, That cat is handsome. You know, I mean... You know, from the standpoint of him being physically attracted to her, she doesn't have wings. She doesn't have a tail. Oh, my God. Look at those little feet. Um, (laughs) It doesn't even register to him that she is a potential. I mean, A, we haven't gotten the vows yet, so he hasn't completely written off Demona yet even. But even that aside, um, the notion of her being some kind of life mate to him doesn't make any sense to his conscious mind. But subconsciously, there's a piece of him that is already hugely attracted to who she is as a person. Now, flip that a little bit for Elisa. Now, Sure, when she first sees him, she falls off a building because he's scary, right? But (laughs) I think very rapidly, once she realizes he's sentient and can talk and all that kind of thing, and then starts to get to know him very rapidly, she stops viewing him as um, a creature. And she thinks he is handsome, you know. Um, But let's be pragmatic. In other words, for Goliath, that's a subconscious attraction. For Elisa, it isn't subconscious. She's aware of it. But she's also pragmatically rejected it. There's no way this could work, right? And this is a problem for her right through the entire 65-episode series, frankly, 
you have to get to the SLG comics before she sort of decides around. to turn that thought process around. Yeah. Um, so for her going into this episode, she already thinks he's physically attractive. She already has this emotional connection to him, which he also has to her. Um, but she has made a conscious decision that this relationship would be impossible. So I'm just going to ignore this attraction and we are going to be platonic friends. She's made that decision. But then she turns into a gargoyle, right? You remember that, right? Vaguely. Um, right. So <laughs> I think it might be in this episode. Now, right. So now we'll uh, get into the whole thing about those who are transformed and how they perceive it. Cause that's a big thing about this episode. We'll get into that in just a moment. But the point is, is that in that moment when she's first transformed into a gargoyle, she, she was viewing him as something other up to that point. I can't be in a relationship with him because he's other. He's too much other. I mean, my mom, my dad, he was, uh, my dad's a native American. My mom's African American. They were other, but they could make it work. This is too much. This is over the top. I, 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 even I can't. You know, I'm biracial and I can't deal with that. Bispecial is too much for me, right? But suddenly, from her point of view, he's no longer other. And she throws her arms around him. <laughs> and she is so happy. Now, she doesn't realize she's transformed. Again, we'll get to that in a minute. Um. All she realizes, she thinks, in fact, that he's transformed, but all she realizes is that he is no longer other. And she is thrilled because for her, consciously, that was the big objection to that relationship. It's too much. I can't deal with it. That much other. And now he's not other anymore. And her arms go around him and she is ready to... <laughs> Mac out, right? You know, I mean, she is ready. Now, if you asked her prior or after this event, do you really want Goliath to be a human so you could be together and it would be easier? She'd say no, because she knows that being a gargoyle is fundamental to who he is. But in that moment, for just that second with her guard down, oh, she. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now again, contrast that with Goliath up to this point, he's had this emotional connection to her, but the physical, he's not even aware of, right? I mean, it, and if he is, it's negative, right? Um, so they're flying along, a uh, scene or two later. And he says, <laughs> like a typical Idiot guy with his foot in his mouth. You know, uh, I never realized how attractive you were till right now. And she sort of looks at him and says, wait, you thought I was ugly? And he goes, whoa, updraft. And, um, and he goes, oh, that was not the right thing to say. So let's change the subject. Um, but what that means is, is that now he's looking at her. Now she's got wings. Now she's got a tail. Um, and he is thinking, 
oh my God, she's beautiful. And having thought that once, he will continue to think that till the day he dies. No matter how old she gets, no matter what species she is, he is now crossed over into being attracted to her consciously from before it was just subconscious. And so jumping to the end of the episode, so he gets turned into a human, right? She's a gargoyle. He's a human. Their relationship is sweet and lovely. He, you know, uh, when they're both gargoyles and she's still afraid to fly because uh, uh, she's only just learned how to do it. And he says, don't worry, I'll always be there to catch you. And then, of course, immediately he turns into a human and <laughs> having no wings starts to fall. And she, who's been terrified of flying, suddenly leaps down, saves him, and comes back up because that fear vanishes for her when Goliath is in danger. And they then have this moment at the very end when Puck is changing everybody back. He changes all the. Oh, I love that moment too. Humans walking around Manhattan into from gargoyles back to humans. Then he changes Elisa um, back into a human. And now for one minute, they're both human. And we had a whole sequence where they were both gargoyles. But for one minute here, they're both human. And there's a... And they make goo-goo eyes at each other. Mm-hmm. They absolutely make goo-goo eyes at each other. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But then one second later, he transforms <laughs> Goliath back into uh, a gargoyle. And literally, Goliath is physically tossed away from Elisa. Just to be metaphorical about it. Um and then at the end of the episode, Goliath tries to talk to her about it, and she stops him, because now she's back to where she was at the beginning. Of course, she's attracted to him, but it can't, you know, this is the way it's got to be. We are so she's, friends. She's already reconciled that in her brain, where he has not. Right. Right. And he never will. From this point on, he never will. Now, he's not there yet because gargoyles make for life and he's mated with Demona. He's got to get to a point where he has just said, I'm done. I've tried everything I can think of to reach Demona. I can't reach her. And that hasn't come yet. Not the final nail in the coffin of their relationship, so to speak. Um, that doesn't come till about. Um, but... From this point on, all through the end of the series, all through the SLG comics, and going into the Dynamite comics that I am literally writing now. Um, well, not literally. I'm talking to you guys now, literally. But, um, Figuratively, but, you know, literally. Um, right. Uh, Goliath's uh, feeling attraction, need, Etc. for Elisa um, will not alter or uh, lighten. She'll, she has things to deal with um, and she'll get there eventually too, but that'll take a while. Um, but in 
this is the key episode, the key turnaround point or turning point, I guess is the phrase <laughs> uh, for their relationship in this episode. Yeah, it's a huge push. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. We'll come back around to it in a bit. There's a point I want to make a little bit later, a discussion to have, but the Demona aspect of this episode, we see a lot of her MO. It's nice to see how a peek at how she's been operating for a while. I like seeing this townhouse with, I like seeing her pay off these thieves. She, and the guy at right says that he's worked for her before. So it explains a lot. And um, I like it. Granted, it's not spelled out in the episode. It's in the memo. But um, that you put this place in Gramercy Park. As a New Yorker, I have to say this about Gramercy Park. It's the only private park left in New York City. There's a lot of... um, It's considered elitist all over the five boroughs. There's even been accusations of racism thrown at the place. And in the middle of the park itself, there's a statue of Edwin Booth, who's a noted Shakespearean actor and the brother of John Wilkes Booth. You add all that together, I think it's the perfect place for her. Um, now you may just be giving us a little too much credit. <laughs> I think I suggested Gramercy Park um, just because I, you know, I lived in New York not very long, but for a couple of years. And um, uh, I felt like I'd seen the kind of townhouse there that we wanted for her. So I, I don't know that I focused on the statue of Edward Booth or, um, but, uh, but I do feel like uh, architecturally it seemed like the right choice. I do. I did like that. We get to see, you know, like what is Demona doing during, you know, her evenings, um, where is she living? How thing, you know, how is she uh, functioning in New York as a solo gargoyle? And um, I really liked seeing how she has put her accumulated through the years wealth to good use. Um, yeah, she's got money. Um, one of the advantages of being alive for a thousand years is that um, accumulating money becomes a bit easier. At least in theory. I never tried it myself. Neither have I. And I really love that summoning scene. It's really fanciful. And when I looked at the memo you sent, you told them to make changes to it. Because apparently what they had originally outlined came off as a little bit more satanic. Well, I don't know if it was truly satanic. And I don't have a copy anymore of uh, of um, their draft. Um, I have the final draft. And I have my memos, but I didn't save all the interim drafts. Um, but I do know that in those days, we were excruciatingly paranoid about the show coming off as satanic. Um, you know, we had ended up only receiving one letter about this. And again, this is back in the largely in the pre internet days. So, I mean, the internet existed and people were using it, but um, we still judge things by the amount of mail we got, you know, like from the post office. Um, And we only ended up getting one letter and it was clear uh, on this topic. And it was clear from the letter that this was someone who'd seen a commercial and hadn't even watched, you know, 10 minutes of an episode or anything like that. 
so we felt pretty free to ignore it. Um, but even before we received that one letter, you know, there were all sorts of discussions about how we could make sure that the gargoyles didn't come off as demons, didn't come off as devils or satanic. We had long, detailed discussions about the shape of Goliath's horns or any of their horns. And we realized that if you have the horns um, point backwards toward the back of the head, it had a very different feeling than if you had the horns point forward. If they point forward, then it felt like Satan. It just summoned up images of Satan. But if the horns angle back, um, then it doesn't as much. It just feels like a kind of monster, you know, and that's what we were looking to do. We weren't trying to relate the gargoyles to Satanism. We just wanted the characters, you know, the human characters or whatever, and the audience to go, they're monsters. No, they're the heroes. You know, don't judge a book by its cover. And we felt the whole issue of Satan or Satanism or Satan worshipers or demons or stuff, that would be a distraction. That would, you know, that would not, I mean, it's one of the reasons we didn't even want them to be magically created beings. We wanted them to be their own species. We didn't want them to be created by something that like by black magic or quote unquote or anything like that. We wanted them, everything about them to be organic to who they were and not summon up uh, memories or associations with something that they weren't. Now, at the same time, you know, we're playing both ends against the middle because, you know, we want everyone to react like, oh, they're scary monsters. And part of what does that is the whole demonic ID, ID, ideation, you know, but, uh, but we didn't want to ever be on that head with that. We were afraid of it. So I don't remember exactly what Lydia wrote and Bryn edited, but I know that Adrian and I both reacted like, uh, that sort of feels a little bit pentagrammy or a little bit like some kind of demonic summoning. Of course, we're not even talking about the gargoyles now. We're talking about Puck. But um, we want to get away from that. Let's make this feel more fanciful. Let's make this feel magical, yes, but not like it's some kind of satanic worship or something like that. We aren't summoning Satan or a demon or a devil. We're summoning Puck. And I just love the way Puck and Demona play off of each other. It's so fantastic. And I was about to say, in a way, even though Puck references Aladdin's lamp, she does get three wishes. And I wrote this down here because this is for all you Demona hero worshippers out there. <laughs> Lest we remind you that when Demona got a magical wish granter, her wishes weren't create a safe haven for my oppressed species, protect us from unjust harm, replenish our greatly diminished numbers. No, they were, get rid of a basic biological feature of my species that inconveniences me personally, and only for me. Literally wipe out every human being on Earth, and if number two is not possible, kill the one who stole my man. (laughs) And the way Puck runs the town with these exact words only, exact words. (laughs) 
uh, Puck is just having a blast. Like he is definitely enjoying just torturing Demona this whole time. Um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, just what's great. I mean, this is my favorite single episode. I mean, I like our multi-parters and I like all of our episodes in one way or another, some more than others, obviously, but there's none I don't like. But if someone said to me, pick one episode for me to watch to see if I like your show. Um, and it would either be Awakening Part 1 in the hope that they would then just have to see Awakening Part 2. And they just wound up watching the whole thing, right? But if I had to pick a single episode that just exemplifies the best of what our series could be <clears throat> on every level, action, romance, comedy, uh, with some really great animation. Yeah, the um, animation is beautiful in this and one. Mm-hmm. Fantastic vocal performances. It's the mirror. Um, and so, yeah, that interaction, I mean, everything that Puck does, clearly whoever was animating Puck in Japan had a very good time with it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and Brent does an amazing job as, as Puck. You know, some of those lines, um, I can make him love you again. Um, <laughs> you know, not easy at giving you a charming personality. I and mean, I can't even do it, but it, it's just so fantastic. Um, and all the little subtle things that Brent does throughout his Puck and playing them off um, Marina as Mona for the two of them. I imagine must have been a lot of fun. I mean, we should have asked Brent about that. You know, if he remembered recording it at all. Um, because, you know, obviously Marina and Brent worked together in those days every day uh, on the set of Next Generation. Because this is back when Next Generation was still also being made. This wasn't like, oh, yeah, Next Generation was a couple of years ago. They were still making Next Generation. Yeah. And so they had the kind of rapport that um, that comes when actors have that great familiarity, you know, that uh, they work together so often that they just know each other's rhythms and that kind of thing. But then on top of it, Marina gets to do that playing Demona, which is a much more aggressive, obviously, character than Deanna. Um, just a little bit. And, and so, you know, if it's Gata and Troy, their interactions are very polite generally. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions in a bunch of given next generation episodes, like when one or the other is possessed. Um, but generally speaking, Gata and Deanna are two very well-mannered, polite characters. And Puck and Demona are not. <laughs> so there's some meat there on the bone, you know? Um, there's some real, uh, there's some stuff they can really sink their teeth in playing off each other and still take advantage of that sort of symbiotic, rhythmic knowledge of each other. And I think you can see it in the episode. I mean, you can feel it. You can hear it. Uh, they work so well together in this. Uh, almost like 
I mean, the only thing I can relate it to is like listening to a great Abbott and Costello routine, you know, um, <laughs> with the timing and the, um, everything about it just, you know, uh, it's so snappy and so dead on and, and, uh, and they're just great. The booth must have been and a, then the animation a blast that day. Great, yeah. Beautiful animation all throughout the episode. I have oh. an amazing cell from this episode of Demona throwing the spear and it's a close up and she's just ooh angry and I love it so much. I've coveted that spear, but on the other hand, I also said to her, never give that thing up. Never. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> And it's just such a gorgeous episode, so fun. Let's talk about the city of gargoyles. I especially like how the no one notices that they have changed. I believe you had to fight for that, you've said in the past. I definitely did. Um, a, it was hard for me to explain. Um, and because it was hard to explain, people kept saying to me, it's too complicated, it's not going to work. People aren't going to get it. And I said, no, they'll get it. In fact, it'll be easier to make sense of it. I understand why it's complicated to explain. But it'll be easier to make sense of it, and here's why. The scene you want to see, specifically, is the scene towards the end, when a bunch of humans who have been transformed into gargoyles without knowing it, see Goliath and the other gargoyles who have all been transformed into humans attacking Demona. And they go, Hey, those monster humans are attacking that woman. Because what this really is about is the other, the concept again of the other that we were talking about earlier. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a gargoyle or a human. The point is, is that wherever you're standing, you're not the other. Someone else whoever, is the monster. Right. Everyone else is the monster to you. So what I tried to say is that, look, if they're aware of the change, then the moment they all change into gargoyles, and we're talking about the entire city of Manhattan, they're all going to be freaking out. There'll be chaos in the streets. What's happened to me? Who did this to me? Ah, right. Um, and then the story becomes about something else. It doesn't become a story about, in essence, the crib, another title from another episode, the eye of the beholder. It doesn't become about how I perceive myself and how I perceive the other. It becomes about some magic spell has turned me into a monster. Help me. Or, I'm going to kill you, you know, that kind of thing. It, it's a distraction from what we were trying to do in the story, if they realize it. And it's citywide, so you couldn't ignore it. Um, so I said, we have to make it so that no one realizes the change. So that gargoyles are just getting on the subway, even though they've got wings. Um so that they're walking down the street without as if nothing has happened at all, at all. Right. That's gotta be the way it is. And that means if you then extrapolate forward to the very first transformation, which is Elisa's, 
when she transforms into a gargoyle, well, it can't be that she gets it, but later, you know, the population of Manhattan doesn't. That doesn't make any sense. You got to be consistent. Well, well, that means that when Elisa transforms into a gargoyle at the very beginning or near the beginning of the episode, her response shouldn't be, I've transformed. She doesn't know she's transformed. She looks at these other guys, and what she sees is they are no longer the other. And I know in my memory that they used to be the other. So you guys all transformed. I've always been a gargoyle, but you guys have just transformed into gargoyles. You used to be human. No, 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 no. Think about it, Elisa. How did we <laughs> first meet? Oh, I fell off the tower and you caught me. And he's like, right, but if you had wings, why would you need me to catch you? Well, I, I can't use these wings to fly because, of course, she's never flown before. But from her point of view, she's always had these wings. So then you think about it, and she's still not getting it right away. So later, they're flying through the city, and she spots all these humans on the ground. They land on the roof, and she's like, oh, my God, everyone in the city has been transformed into humans. And Goliath is just shaking his head going, no, 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 no. I, I love that moment. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? Oh, my Keith, God. Keith did that so well. He does everything well, but he really did that well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. He lands thinking, oh, now she gets it. She's shocked, and now she gets it. But she doesn't get it yet. <laughs> then, to top that off, you get this great scene after the gargoyles are transformed into humans. That is, our regular gargoyles are transformed into humans. And um, Elisa saves Goliath's life, and Goliath is, literally doesn't understand why he fell. Why did I fall? I've never fallen before. And she's like, you fell because you've been transformed, and you don't have wings. And he's like, no, no, we didn't transform. You transformed um, back to being a gargoyle. Now it's her turn to be like, no. <laughs> um, and Brooklyn, I love Brooklyn, who speaks with such confidence. Alisa, I think we'd know <laughs> if we were, <laughs> if we used to be gargoyles. So I, I think we'd know that, you know. And Hudson goes, we never needed wings to fly before. And then, so it's up to Lexington, the engineer, to step in and go, wait, wait, think about that for a second. How the fuck did we used to fly without wings, right? And suddenly Goliath, puts it all together and goes, oh, I get it. Elisa used to be human. Now she's a gargoyle. We used to be gargoyles. Now we're human. Now they're all on the same page with the audience, right? Then, of course, Simona has Puck cast another spell, not what she asked for or not what she thought she was asking for, but all the humans in Manhattan are transformed into gargoyles. And again, none of them noticed it. So now they'll perceive any human as the other. So our cast of former gargoyles, now human, become the scary monsters to this group of, to this population of gargoyles. So that when these humans rush at these, these gargoyles, actually, or really humans <laughs> having been transformed into gargoyles, so hard to describe. This is what I'm talking about. I had trouble explaining it the terms to people. But when they rush at them, 
all that Brooklyn, Lexington, and Broadway have to do is act scary. Ooh, grr, we're monsters. And it works. They're scared off because, oh, my God, humans run. You know, they're the monsters. They're the other. So everyone's reaction, as I'm trying to explain this, and this includes uh, Bryn and Lydia, Bryn for sure, uh, was like, this is too complicated. It's not going to work. And I'm like, this is the only way it can work. And trust me, when you see it, you won't be confused. It's complicated because I'm describing it, and I have only these two terms, human and gargoyle, to use <laughs> to describe it. And that makes it confusing, but it, when, you, when it's a visual, it'll all be clear. And my bosses didn't think so, and, uh, and even Bryn wasn't really sure. <laughs> Honestly, um, and I can't remember uh, where Lydia stood on it. I, I don't remember. Um, but I was adamant, and so I got it through, and I felt very vindicated because it really works exactly. It, it how I really it. does. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the problem was is as I'm trying to describe it, and I have a limited vocabulary to describe it with. And then, of course, there are other problems, just technical problems, which is, okay, how are we going to, what terms are we using in the script so that you understand, so that someone reading the script has clarity? Gets it, yeah. When they're boarding it, you know. Um, so that was a whole other set of problems. But the point was, this was the only way it could work to tell this story. Now you could, I suppose, tell a story about everyone transforming into a gargoyle or into a minotaur or whatever, you know, and everyone freaks out. I'm a minotaur. Oh no. You know, but that wasn't the story we were trying to tell. And the story we were trying to tell, this was the only way it could work. Uh, frankly, um, I still believe. And then someone will, listen to this podcast and say, well, you could have done this. And I'll be like, no, yeah. Oh yeah, that, that would have worked. But, um, <laughs> but no, I believe this was the only way it could work to tell this story, which is what we wanted to tell. And there wasn't much disagreement about that. It was just a clarity thing. And um, so this idea of perception and really this idea of what is it that you see in the mirror? You know, and that becomes your reality. And anyone who doesn't fit that, that they become a member of the other. And we are afraid of the other. We are literally research that's been done years after this episode came out. I think there's been scientific research that proves that we are hardwired to fear the other. Um, and the other, of course, includes you know, different races for us. I mean, in the real world, you know, we are hardwired for uh, sectarianism, for tribalism, for viewing, uh, if you're white, viewing other races as a danger. If you're black, viewing other races as a danger. Um, You know, if you're tall, viewing short people as a danger. If you're short, viewing tall people as a danger. I mean, literally... We are hardwired to believe that the only people who can keep us safe are the ones in our immediate tribe and anyone else becomes the other. And so the wider you spread it, 
the more difficult it becomes to recognize that the other are just people too. Um, and, you know, that's what a fantasy show like Gargoyles or a science fiction show like Star Trek or whatever, that's what they're good for. That's what they're best at is sort of taking our foibles and foibles is a very gentle word for it. Um, and creating a metaphor for that, that allows the audience to see, Oh, well, of course I shouldn't hate the gargoyles just because they look like that. It's about what they do, not who they are. Right. So yeah, I should be afraid of Demona, but not a Goliath. Um, and then hope that they can take that lesson and go, hmm, maybe that's true about people. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy talk. <laughs> so what do we think Fox and Xanatos were doing when this all went down? <laughs> Probably I would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> that's, that's a gargoyle. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Ever a chance of uh, just flashing around a city, showing Xanatos and Fox's gargoyles, or Matt and Chavez? (laughs) I mean, I'm sure we must have at least talked about it. I think in one version of maybe not the script, but the outline, um, Goliath even tries to blame this on Xanatos, and we felt like uh, we've done that trope, you know, blaming your master villain because he seems to be guilty of everything at this point. I'm like, let's just not do that. Um, part of the reason you don't see them absolutely is just, okay, resources, no man hours. Um, we've got to design human versions of our five leads, a dog version of Bronx, a human version of, Demona, a gargoyle version of Elisa, and then a bunch of nondescript human gar- human quote-unquote gargoyles around Manhattan, right? That's a lot of design work <laughs> for a single episode. And in fact, originally, you know, there's this clothesline, and Hudson pulls a sheet off the clothesline to wrap the mirror in it. Remember that seat? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, originally there was supposed to be other clothes on that clothesline, so that by the time the gargoyles got to uh, Rockefeller Center, they'd be wearing clothes. Um, they wouldn't still be walking around in their loincloth. Um, and then it was just like that's another five design if we put them in clothes. Too much. We don't need to see yeah, it's a lot. Goliath as a human dressed in a t-shirt and jeans. We just don't need it. Um, and uh, there's part of me that I would, I think that would be appealing to me to see, <clears throat> but absolutely unnecessary. And we were just on this episode stretched to the limits on a design level. So there was no way we were going to start bringing in characters like Fox or Xanatos or Matt or whatever and say, how are these guys looking? 
because that's all there is to it because they wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have no- recognized the change. So there's nothing dramatic to seeing Xanatos as a gargoyle. Something dramatic to seeing Matt Bluestone as a gargoyle. It would just literally be to satisfy the curiosity of the audience. What do they look like? Um, and, you know, we don't even have the... I mean, even if the design issue wasn't a factor, we didn't have the screen time for that. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this episode. Mm-hmm. All right, so we can safely say Xanatos and Fox were having sex while this was taking place, and uh, Adrian <laughs> I mean, would have if said I had no. A tale, that's where I'd go first too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of the human forms, we should discuss the uh, gargoyles' human forms in this because there are nods to their voice actors in those designs, I believe. A little bit. Um... I mean, the one who kind of actually looks like the voice actor, the only one really is um, Tom Adcox, Lexington with the short, dark hair. Did kind of look like Tom. Um, uh, you know, Bill Fogerbach, he's a big guy, but he's not built like Broadway. He's a big, tall um, uh, guy. and uh, But he's a blonde so we gave Broadway blonde hair. And uh, Ed, you know, the idea was to make it look like Ed, but with Hudson's beard. Um, and then for Brooklyn, um, you know, let's make it look a little bit like Jeff, but we felt the need because Brooklyn has a beak to make the nose bigger than Jeff is. And not to get, Jeff is a blonde also, but not to give him the blonde hair, but to give him Brooklyn's white hair. And then for Goliath, you know, uh, we gave him darker skin to match Keith. Um, but, uh, and the in-universe explanation for that, I've always said, is that subconsciously at this stage, Goliath wants to match Elisa. So he's seeing himself with a skin tone similar to hers. And then, you know, you give him the long hair because that's what Goliath has. And we were trying not to change the hair where it existed. Um, and so the end effect for me, when you see Goliath in a loincloth as a human, is that he looks mostly to me like Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> oh, I can definitely uh, see that. <laughs> um, but it wasn't like, hey, make him look like Conan. It was just like, make Goliath human. And, and oh, a human Goliath kind of looks like Conan. Um Again, Conan the Barbarian, not Conan O'Brien. But um, huge difference there, huge. Yeah. <laughs> as a as a poet, so that was it, you know. Yeah, and I don't normally I wouldn't go here, but I'm going to go here just now. That's one of the reasons why when the Goliath Chronicles came along and they did that episode where Goliath turned human, he was as white as Conan O'Brien. That was so bad. I mean, that was so bad. <laughs> Not my show. <laughs> nope. <laughs> not your circus, not your monkeys. I mentioned Gramercy Park earlier, but I love the use of real, and I do this every episode, but especially here, real New York locations. We had the Metropolitan Museum with a very accurate layout of, of the inside, especially that Egyptian wing. We had Gramercy Park, the Twin Towers, and you mentioned Rockefeller Center. This was New York scenery porn to me, and I love it. 
Uh, I don't know that we thought of it as porn, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, but you know we uh, you know we talked about this when Frank was on. He talked about it. He took a lot of photographs. I was had, again lived in New York for years, and um, and so you know we wanted to you know we got this big fantasy concept. You've got humans turning into gargoyles. You've got gargoyles turning into humans. You've got Puck from Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, it, that's a lot of fantasy. And so the more fantastic it gets, the more guys like Frank and I want to ground it in reality. So, you know, whereas, you know, in Long Way to Morning, we might say, hey, let's do this at the old York Opera House in Greenwich Village. And you're like, the what? Where? Um, it's like, no, let's do it in actual real locations here to further ground it because long way to morning is a very, um, intense, you know, um, I mean, there are gargoyles in it, but it's really just a hunt, right? You know, Demona's hunting these two guys. You could have done that exact same story for the most part with human beings. Right. Um, and an AK 47 instead of a, particle beam weapon, you know? Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, so that was a more grounded story. So I felt, you know, all right, it's vaguely on Bleecker street. There's an opera house there that's been there for 150 years or something. We made it up. It's fine. Um, but here I wanted to, the more fantastic the scenario, the more I feel the need to ground uh, it in reality. So that's why you get actual places like Rockefeller Center or the World Trade Center, um, et cetera, in there, because you want to lock down um, uh, something to ground the fantasy Speaking of fantasy and realism, I'm going to go. I'm going to talk about realism here. I've seen some fans ask many times, "Why is there a shop in Rockefeller Center selling medieval weapons?" Once again, as a New Yorker, I used to spend a lot of time in Rockefeller Center. There was a shop. I don't know if it's still there, but for many years there was a shop there that had medieval weapons right in the windows. I used to think as a kid, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And when I watch it, it's like, oh, they knew about that shop. And then I come on the internet and sometimes people will say, why is that shop there? Yeah, I mean, look, we cheated. I'm not going to pretend we didn't. You know, that the window gets blown out and the shield just rolls right up to Goliath. <laughs> <laughs> it's still pretty convenient. But yeah, that shop was there. I mean, you know, it was... I don't know why, you know, but it was an antique shop. But in the window, they, for whatever reason, favored medieval weapons. And I don't know if that was still true when we made the show, but it was, it was. true. Um, it was true when I lived there. And um, and that's just, you know. Uh, and so, you know, was it a bit of a stretch? Maybe. Um, but not horrible. Um and uh, so, you know, that was just kind of fun. I, I mean, there are places there. Goliath gets thrown really hard into that window. And since he's a human, not a gargoyle, I yeah, think he should have been in more pain. Um, and I think that's fair. Uh, I, but I, I love the line about what his true strength is. Yeah. Which I just, and, that's know. one of 
that's the kind of line Keith David's born to read, you know? I mean, just sort of so like, good. Um, Such a good line. That entire final battle is just fantastic. And I love the contrast between the two sides of that battle. One being over the top with giant flowers and spinning axes, and the other Demona with a particle beam that you can feel... You can feel how powerful and lethal that thing is. The animators and the sound effects did a really good job with that thing. And you know Elisa enjoyed, for the first time ever, being able to punch Demona right in the face. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, one of the things that's fun about this is that, um, or for me at least, is that Elisa's been a gargoyle for, what, 20 minutes? An hour? Mm Showtime, two tops. Simona's been a gargoyle for a thousand years, and she is a very well-trained warrior who's managed to survive for a very long time, right? There's no way that Elisa should be able to hold her own, except for the fact that the, the, Simona is, as is as also happened in Long Way to Morning, so angry that she's not thinking straight. And so she keeps giving Elisa opening and Elisa's, you know, a, a trained police officer with hand-to-hand combat training, etc., cetera, um, weapons training, all this stuff. Right. Um, but let's face it. If it were just about the two of them setting off against each other, Demona should own Elisa and doesn't. And why doesn't she? Because Demona can't get past her anger. It's the same reason that Demona gets distracted away from what she really wishes or needs, forget wishes, but needs when she's summoned Puck up into this vendetta against Elisa in the first place. She can't control her fury about this woman. Um, and that gives Elisa the opening she needs to trounce someone that frankly should be out of her league. And uh, I think it, I mean, I think it works really well here. Uh, I mean, I think the the fight speaks to it. I think it, it's great. And I agree with you, the, the thing with all the fanciful stuff that Puck's doing on his side of the battle um, is just a kick right down to him. You know, we, we had this desire to transform Bronx into a dog um, just because it was fun. I mean, there's no story reason for it. <laughs> and we kept trying to figure out, you know, well, would he get transformed when the gargoyles transformed? It's like, no, that doesn't make sense. He shouldn't be a human. And why would he transform into a dog? It doesn't fit Puck's spell, you know. Um, but having Puck do it during the battle because he thinks, oh, big beast lipping at me. I'm going to transform you into a dog. And then he realizes, oh, crap, wrong kind of dog. Here, this one's still <laughs> dangerous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Should have gone with the Chihuahua there. That was more helpful. You know, that just becomes funny, wacky puck stuff, you know, like the giant flower or the spinning axe, and it doesn't become part of confusing the issue about the transformations and the other and that kind of thing. It just becomes a funny little, you know, puck bit. Um, In In the end when Puck wants to reward her for giving him, you know, bringing this great time into his life. Um, she could ask for anything right there. 
she just wants him to go, and so he gets butthurt. And then he gives her an amazing <laughs> gift. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, of course, she's not going to like being human at all. So he knows it's a jab to her, but it's like such a huge benefit to her as well. Yeah, I mean, she's so... Uh, what becomes clear in episodes that follows this is that, oh my God, this is really useful. Um, but her initial reaction is being turned into a human is like, you've downgraded me. You know? Um, this is horrible. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, she has that line, which I love midway through the episode when she sees all the humans have been transformed into gargoyles in the city. She's like, I wanted you to destroy them, not give them the gift of being a gargoyle. Cause that's how she sees it. You know, being a gargoyle is so superior to being a human being. So that by the end, when she's turned into a human being, it's inferior. There are a couple of things we had to be really careful of. I wanted to make sure that it was clear from his spell that she'd still be a gargoyle at night, that this wasn't like a, um, permanent. Yeah. That she was just human 24 hours a day now. Gargoyle at night, human during the day. And we visually spell that out in a future episode, but I wanted to make sure that the spell spelled it out with as much clarity as possible. We didn't want to lose Demona as a gargoyle. We just wanted to give her this additional uh, superpower, in essence, that Goliath and the others didn't have. Um, and Because being immortal was enough. <laughs> right. And see, and see how she takes to it, which she takes to it like a fish to water, frankly. Because there's always been something very human about Demona anyway. Um, and not that she's ever caught to that. Um, so that was one thing. And then the other thing that I thought was really important is that, um, you know, the whole thing was about her stealing the mirror. Then we have all these shenanigans that she used the mirror to do, right? We can't leave her with the mirror. So in anger, she has to smash it. And that was in the script. And somehow or other, it did not get animated. And um, so we just Had added the sound effect of her. <laughs> yeah, the off-screen smash of the mirror um, to imply it. Because we had, I, I still don't know how that happened, but somehow we didn't show it. Um, and, uh, I felt that was, I, well, it was very effective though, still, to, but, to yeah. Mm -hmm. off. yeah. Um, I mean, there's some great sound stuff, just the way Puck moves through the air. I mean, the animation's great, but those little whiz sounds. You that, listen uh, to it. Yeah. That Pekka put in, uh, Pekka Thomas, our sound effects editor put in for when he moves are so great. It's such a little thing, but they're brilliant. And it adds so much. Um, I, I just love that stuff. And, you know, the episode for me is really funny all throughout, but really tragic and heartfelt on another level. Um, there's some great action in it at the beginning and at the end and some interesting stuff in the middle. And then just this really kind of, 
fascinating story that shows the potential of the series um, while widening the world of it, both in terms of the introduction of Puck and what that implies down the road for others of the third race. And also what it does to the Goliath-Elisa relationship and what it does to Demona at the end, sort of give her the ability to completely alter her modus operandi um, it's, and it, make it, her an even Yeah, there's more so many questions that you was. walk away with at the end of this. Yeah. Now, when you guys first saw it, did you get the whole, okay, now she's a gargoyle at night or a human during the day? Did that... Oh, yeah. Was yes. Clear, or was yes. Something that you... Good. No, I, I absolutely didn't think she was permanently human, for sure. Ditto. Very clear. And what was cool about that also was, and I'm going to finish the point on this, is that um, I've got another point to make right after, but it moves... It's part of the theme of the villains getting more powerful on this show. The pack, the pack being a very visual example of this later, Xanatos gets more powerful as the series progresses, and even newer villains who show up. So I thought it was a natural fit, and I like it. I do have one more point, and I think this is something we do need to discuss, because I often run into some other fans who seem to miss the point on this, and I wrote down this note, why Elisa can't permanently become a gargoyle, why Goliath can't permanently become a human, and why neither can have Demona's deal, because some fans just don't get it. Um, I think there are certain things that are intrinsic to, uh, to what makes a character who or what they are. Um, and Goliath has to be a gargoyle, um, and Elisa has to be human. Um, Xanatos has to be mortal. Um, you know, there are certain things that if you give them the quote unquote heart's desire, or you try to make it, um, easy it robs the character of who the character is fundamentally. Um, and it's like I was saying earlier, I think if you asked Elisa, not in a heat of the moment moment, but in a quiet contemplative moment, would you like Goliath to transform into a human? I think she could answer you with all rationality and say, I'm not going to pretend that that wouldn't make life easier. It would. But no, I wouldn't want that because being a gargoyle is who he is fundamentally. And I wouldn't want him to change that because I wouldn't want to change who he is. Who he is is who I fell in love with. And if I asked him to change who he is to be with me, I wouldn't want to be with that person anymore. Or in any event, maybe I would, but... I'd be asking him something that is so unfair and so selfish. And I think the flip side of it is true for Goliath as well. And on Goliath's side, I think there's another aspect to it too, which is that their love for each other proves something to Goliath. Goliath has had since the 10th fucking century this perhaps irrational, but optimistic belief that someday 
humans and gargoyles can live together in peace and cooperation. He doesn't have a hell of a lot of evidence to back that up, but he believes it. Goliath is fundamentally an optimist. Not every moment of every day or of every night, but fundamentally, at his core, he is an optimist. And he believes that the two races can live together in harmony. And one huge piece of evidence for him is how he feels about Elisa Maza. If the two of them can make it work, then there's hope. And he needs that hope. And that's on top of all the same arguments I just gave you for Elisa towards Goliath just flipped over, right? Um, he also feels like this is who she is. I love her for who she is. I don't need or want her to change for me because I love who she is now. I, you know, if she evolves as a person, great. I'll try and evolve with her, but I don't need her to change for me. All that stuff is true for him as well, but there's an added layer for Goliath. I don't even know if he's conscious of it, but for him, their relationship proves something that he needed proof of. He needed it. And he got it. And so, no. Uh, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying like, again, on an individual story basis, would we ever see Elisa as a gargoyle again? Would we ever see Goliath as a human again? I'm not going to answer that. That's like a spoiler question. But what I will say is what you're not going to see is a permanent change where one or the other is permanently changed to uh, this or that. You know, I'm never going to make it as long as I'm in control of this. I'm never going to make uh, their lives that easy um, because it would fundamentally change who they are as characters. Agreed, agreed. I would never want to see them as anything but what they are. I mean, and that's not to say, I mean, seeing Elisa as a gargoyle for an episode is a lot of fun. She's cute. You know, <laughs> you, you know what I noticed uh, watching it this time around is that um, when all the other humans that have been turned into gargoyles get turned back into humans, they're all like missing their shoes and stuff. But Elisa right. gets her <laughs> full outfit back. <laughs> no, no, like unbuttoned jeans or anything. <laughs> right. Where did that red jacket go for for a, an hour? You know, I mean. <laughs> Where did her black boots go? Don't worry about it. Puck handled all that. Puck will handle the details. But it's too many for all those New Yorkers. It's too many details for Puck to handle. So screw it. You don't have the shoes. You're all walking on barefoot. You're all walking on barefoot. And so, you know, you feel like in the news the next day, the news obviously doesn't say all of Manhattan turns to gargoyles. What it says is all of Manhattan loses their shoes. Um, (laughs) The shoe stores made a lot of money the next day. (laughs) I guess it depends how many pairs you have. There you go. Um, I think we should begin to wrap things up. I think this discussion has been fantastic. I think we covered all... 
Such what? a great episode. So good. Yeah. I think we covered all the bases on this episode. Is there anything we missed? I don't think so. We hit it just about everything. You know, there's uh, the trio have their own little subplot in this, which is their desire to assimilate. Um, that we didn't talk about at all. Their desire not to be the other, that they're very aware that they are the other, that Halloween was kind of fun for them when for a little bit they didn't have to be the other, that there's a burden to being the other. Um, yeah, it's true that everyone else is always the other to you, but when you're in the minority, you can't escape knowing that to the majority, you're the other, and you are taught that and hammered with that day in and day out. Day in and day out, or in the gargoyle case, night in and night out, I guess. Mm-hmm. The point is, is that it's brutal being treated as the other all the time. So for that, those moments in the subway and elsewhere where they don't have to be the other, where the girls can look at them and go, hey, those guys are kind of cute. Even the Lexington who get, right? Um, it's a nice moment for all three of them, including Lex. It's weird, kind of fun, but weird, you know? Um, and that's because there's a piece of them as teenagers who are very tired of always being treated as the other and would very much like to not be different. And I think we've all, particularly when we were teenagers, felt that way. Why can't I just fit in? And, you know, we all ultimately, if we're living healthy lives, learn to embrace our otherness. You know, uh, in young justice terms, we are all outsiders, right? Um, yeah. But... But let's not pretend that's easy. Um, and so there is this little wistful, I mean, you know, Hudson has a wistful moment about not getting to see the sun, but that's not what the trio are thinking about. Brooklyn, Lexington, and Broadway are thinking about, um, God, it's not that I don't want to be a gargoyle. Wouldn't it be nice to not be the other for a bit, you know? Just to have that moment like we had on Halloween and not have it be because everyone thinks I'm in a mask. Well, this takes place before the Halloween episode, but yeah. <laughs> Peek behind the yeah. curtains are recorded out of order for people. <laughs> um, sorry, yeah. But uh, it's a moment like that. Um, where for a second... They aren't the other. And that for a second, that feels pretty good, even if they know it can't last, even if they know it shouldn't last. Um, that the solution to the problem isn't as simple as a magical transformation or assimilation, even. It's got to be about all of us sort of saying, it's okay to be the other. We don't mind that you're other. Because we're other to you, you know. It, that's where it's got to go, ultimately. Um, Amen. And But, uh, you know, for them, it, it, there is this sort of wistful moment, and that's the one thing I think we kind of skipped. Yeah. Well, we just covered it now, beautifully, I might add. And I do think we should wrap up. Um, 
It's getting late and there's dinners to be had, so um, Greg, we eaten all day. <laughs> Jen, we appreciate your dedication. I appreciate your dedication. So before we say good night, Greg, this is coming out September sixteenth. Happy birthday, Jennifer! Is there anything you want to plug? Happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> me? No. <laughs> I want to plug Jennifer's birthday. Everybody, and Jennifer. Happy birthday wishes. I would like that a lot, actually. That would be really cool. All right. Well, in that case, I keep binging Gargoyles. Contact your local comic shop if you want hard copies and ask them to order the Dynamite Entertainment Gargoyles comic for you. I think it should be coming out in previews very soon. And um, join us next time for The Silver Falcon. It has been a blast. Thanks, guys. realized when you were human how beautiful you are you mean you thought i was ugly well uh careful updraft